Again, we're going to be in Psalm 46. So when you get there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're so excited that you're here, especially if it's your first time. We just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. And hopefully someone's grabbed you and shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're doing here uh, as a community uh, centered around the gospel. So uh, like Lauren said, we are in a series uh, called uh, From the Pastor to the Palace, Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, we're really excited uh, this morning. We're going to be talking about a topic that I think uh, is extremely prevalent and hopefully helpful. This psalm that we're talking about <clears throat> is one that has been a famous psalm uh, through church history and one that many people have turned to uh, in times of difficulty, stress, strain, and particularly times of fear. And so we're going to be talking about the emotion of fear this morning. Uh, and particularly, we're going to talk about it in light of David's psalm here in Psalm 46. Um, and when I think about fear, I, I personally uh, have had a particular bend when I, when I think about this emotion primarily. Since I've been, since I was young, probably from uh, early childhood, I've never liked scary movies. Do we have any like scary movie fans in the house? Okay, I don't understand you. We will never connect on that level. I don't understand that at all. And that's not just like, I, I was like that as a kid. I thought maybe I would grow into that. It just has never happened. I do not grow into the idea of paying someone to scare me. Haunted houses make no sense to me. That whole idea is just totally foreign. I, I don't like the feeling. I remember being young, and I also think that things are scary that other people just generally don't think are scary. Like, uh, I remember being young and, and watching, you guys remember the movie The Mummy with Brendan Fraser? That terrified me. I remember being a kid, my friends are all into it, and I was kind of like covering my ears, you know. I just didn't want to watch that stuff. And so my friends would like, you know, let's get together and let's watch scary movies. I would, you know, pretend to need to do other things. I just didn't want to be around. Uh, and so I've never really understood that, that idea of a thrill that comes from someone scaring the mess out of you, like getting bad dreams for the rest of your, you know, next three weeks, six weeks, life, whatever. Makes zero sense. But teach his own. So there's, there's an element of, of kind of triteness to scariness, right? <clears throat> that fear kind of in some ways can be a, a thrill. This is why we have uh, famous movies like Silence of the Lambs or things like that. Why do they make so much money? Because there's a thrill element to scariness uh, that in some uh, odd way that I don't understand we like. Uh, but there's also something that's not so trite about fear. Um, you know, 
there are, there are areas of our lives where we do not attribute fear as the primary emotion, and yet fear is the primary emotion that's motivating some of our actions. Uh, that could be like, for me, in the, in the middle of the night, uh, this happened actually most recently. I don't know if you've ever seen the Friends episode where Phoebe's uh, smoke alarm goes off and she can't make it go off. You know what I'm talking about? The smoke alarm goes off and she like, takes the battery out and then it starts beeping again. And she like looks at it like it's possessed, and then she starts taking the wires out of it, and it keeps beeping. And then she gets a hammer and just beats it, and then it keeps beeping. And then she kind of throws it down the, the laundry hatch in her apartment, and then a fireman comes up with it, and it's still beeping. Uh, that happened to my wife and I. Uh, I, I. I did not know how to fix this. But when the, when the alarm first went off in the middle of the night, uh, I don't know if I was just having a weird dream or whatever, but I, I had uh, my phone that was plugged in, but it was on the edge of the bed on top of a cover. But I threw the cover off, so my whole phone... Everything just goes sling up against the wall, and I stood up, and my wife's like, what in the world is wrong with you? And it was just because the smoke alarm had started in the house. And, and if you take in, like, a rudimentary psychology, you know what happened, right? It's called the fight-or-flight response. And this is where your brain and your body actually responds to things that make you afraid. So something that would be a, a, a potential threat to you uh, enters into your life. And your brain actually shoots adrenaline, like this chemical adrenaline comes into your body in order to respond to the threat. And you have to decide really quickly, and a lot of this has uh, been hardwired in you from probably childhood, whether or not you're going to fight, and that's the wise decision, or whether you're going to run, and the adrenaline's giving you the strength to do either to save your life, right? So without me even having to really know what to do, I jump out of my bed and I freaked out, you know, and my wife's like, calm down, just take the battery out, which that didn't work, but <clears throat> needless to say. But the, here's the thing, that may, those are like immediate, uh, short, uh, quick experiences with fear. But there's other kinds of things that exhibit, or they, they elicit fear in our lives. And they're more long, they're more drawn out. This is something like a parent that's dealing with a troubled teenager. It's not just an immediate circumstance that, that brings this kind of fear, but it's this long, drawn out feeling of foreboding. What will my troubled teenager do at school if they don't find friends that are good, solid friends, or if they don't... Uh, you know, begin to trust Christ and their hearts be changed and they don't, you know, look for approval in all these other areas. You get concerned for your troubled teenager. And so that fear, it just kind of lingers. It's not like that immediate sense of fight or flight like I experienced in the middle of the night, but it's this lingering foreboding. And, and fear takes a lot of forms. So fear can take the form of worry or nervousness or angst or anxiety. There's a, there's a big one. Yeah, you know, fear can take the form of anxiety or terror or horror, right? All of these are different forms of fear, and they don't have to be just short bursts. They could be extended periods of fear. And there's a million different things that we could fear, uh, and they are not completely outlandish, like fear of loss or fear of abandonment or fear of rejection. Uh, I think you know every young person, for the most part, probably fears rejection when they first show up to middle school or high school or in those, uh, you go to a new school. Uh, I remember going to the new school for the first time and going to the lunchroom. That's like the worst, you know, you go to your class and it's like, okay, you mostly have assigned seats. Everybody has to do the same thing. Then you go to lunch and everybody goes to sit next to people they actually know and like, and you're the one they don't know. So they don't like. So there's the fear of rejection there, right? I always joke about uh, my, I had a really difficult experience. I went into middle school, which is like, you know, the peak of awkward. Sorry if you're in middle school, but peak of awkward. On top of that, I had just gotten into a car accident with my dad, so I had to wear an eye patch. So it was like pirate and middle school all in one. 
like the worst possible scenario. And I went to a new school, right? And so I went from a predominantly uh, you know, white school into I was the only mostly white guy in my school. And so I was like a little bit of salt in the midst of pepper and some Latino. And, and then there was me. And then I walk in with my eye patch. You know, I just wasn't... Fear of rejection was a real thing, and I don't think that I was outlandish for believing that, right? It's like, who is this kid, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm going to continue. It could be fear of pain, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. I think that even with our children, like, we're glad in some ways that they have a fear of pain, right? It's what keeps them from touching something that would be hot or, you know, um, or stepping on something and they, they don't actually feel it, and then, you know, later on it gets infected, um, Fear of hurt, and I think those are different because, you know, pain might be physical, but there's such a thing as being hurt uh, internally, you know, like wounded emotionally. Uh, and then there's just like fear of the unknown, which I think many of us struggle with, particularly uh, because our human nature wants us to control. And that's just fear of not knowing what's next. Uh, we, we like to be able to know what's next. We don't know what's next. We have the response of fear. And different things can trigger different people. So like for some of you, um, if you walk, in, you walk into a messy house it immediately creates anxiety in you, right? Like you start being afraid of like, okay, what are the kids going to get into? Like if my child touches that, they're going to be sick inevitably. Um, and and it, it starts to elicit fear in you. Um, and some of you, you can walk into a messy house and you're like, ah, oh, my domain. You know, you have multiple kids. You're just like, this is normal. Okay, this is called life. Um, but on the flip side, like an ambiguous conversation with your boss would send you down a spiral, you know? It's where you get a new job, and you do a presentation, you go to your boss, you know, how do you, how do you feel about the presentation, and they're kind of, you know, not really looking at you, oh, it, it, it was fine, uh, and, they, and you say, well, I'm really excited about this job, I'm excited for the future, and they go, yeah, yeah, lots of moving parts, uh, we'll talk on Monday. The whole weekend's just miserable for you, isn't it? It's like, what do you mean there's moving parts, we'll talk Monday, and you, maybe that triggers your fears, um, but nonetheless, what we find is that fear makes its way and laces its way into our hearts and into our lives, uh, not just as the primary emotion that we experience when short little bursts of threats come our way, but also in everyday life, fear is a very real emotion. And like anger, we mostly fear what we cannot control. Uh, counselor Dan Allender says this, fear is provoked when the threat of danger, physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. I'll read that again. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, whether it's physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. Underline there, inability. It exposes what's already there, that we are unable to protect, at least completely, the things that we care most about. Now, having said that, there are some things that God has allowed us to do that we do play a part in protecting the things that we value and cherish, and therefore it almost exacerbates the problem because we think if we do all the right things, if we parent the right way, then somehow in this broken and messed up world, our kids are going to be completely fine, even though we know that you know, everything around us is screaming that we can't control that. And that's a scary place to be. Same thing with your marriage, same thing with all the things that you love and cherish. And so on this spectrum of control and lack of control or failure and success we long to preserve what we love and when we lose control or our perceived control the human response to that is fear and now i want to say this before we move into and before we pray just like anger there's a righteous fear and unrighteous fear or good fear and 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 bad fear if you want to use those two terms so like the bible continually and we'll talk about this next week says things like fear the lord keep his commandments there's such a thing as righteous fear. Uh, another thing that I think is good is whenever you tell your toddler, uh, you know, don't go in the street. The street can be dangerous. 
uh, you know, you can get run over and killed in the street. Do you want that? And they're like, no, I don't want that. You're like, okay, that's a good fear, at least for a certain age. Now you don't want your kid to be 16 and be on the road, you know, and sweating. So you, hopefully you're like moving them along in that. But I think there's, a, there's a, such a thing as a righteous fear, especially whenever children are young, they're really dangerous things in the world, right? Hopefully as a parent, you're telling your young ones, you know, don't get into a car with strangers, okay? You don't just, you know, go up and my son has a way of just hugging everyone, which works out in this context for the most part, but it terrifies me for other contexts, right? My son just wants to go up and hug people. And everybody's like, he's so sweet. And I'm like, yeah, but I want him to be, you know, generally scared <laughs> about just hugging anyone, right? And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But then there's unrighteous fear where we are mostly just afraid of what we cannot control and we direct our fears in areas that are not God and that is rooted in the fact that we would love to be God. We want to be like God in a way that we were never meant to be like God. And this psalm particularly, David is aimed there. And if you just read it at face value, you'll think that he's just saying something that kind of frustrates you. If you're in the room right now and you struggle with fear, this psalm could frustrate you at face value because David just says, I'm not going to fear. Okay. Married couples, has that ever worked in your marriage? Like, I'm afraid of this. Okay, don't be afraid. Let's go to lunch. Like, oh, you fixed it. You know, thank you. You ever looked at your, you know, your wife, like, you shouldn't be frustrated about that. Oh, my God, never thought of that. I shouldn't. You can just move on now. It doesn't work that way. And, and so it works for me. All right, well, you get the face mic next week, okay? <laughs> Teach us all how to do that. <clears throat> but it, it's difficult. It's, uh, the reality is that we can't just be told to not have an emotion. And yet David seems to be doing that self, uh, doing that to himself, rather. I will not fear. I'm not going to fear. But then he starts to give us all sorts of implicit ways in which he has arrived to this conclusion to regulate that emotion. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I don't think that what David is saying is that he is regulating whether or not he feels that emotion because you can't do that. But once he feels that emotion, then he's choosing to regulate that emotion based on theological truth. So we're going to kind of parse that out. What's David actually after here? He writes this to the sons of Korah. This psalm is famous in church history. It has been a bulwark of boldness and confidence for the church. Martin Luther, we'll talk about this maybe hopefully a little bit towards the end. Martin Luther in the Reformation, if things were going terribly, he would gather his, his friends together and say, let's turn again to the 46th psalm. When they were facing martyrdom, where they were facing persecution, when they were facing great hatred, he'd say, let's turn again here for strength. So this psalm has always been one to bring hope it allows us to be honest about our fears. It allows us to be honest about who God is. And lastly, it brings hope to us when we're able to finally admit that we are afraid. And so here's what I want to do. I think one of the hardest things to get across, at least initially when we talk about these things, is that we ought to be honest about our emotions. I know we're in church, but the truth is many of us are afraid to be honest in church. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray that God would at least allow us to be honest as we sit in our seats about our fears. <clears throat> because I think that's the first step to actually addressing them and finding peace in the Lord. So if you will, bow your heads. I'm going to ask God to help us to be honest about the areas that we most deeply fear. Lord, we confess to you now that either A, we are afraid, or B, we are afraid to admit that we're afraid. And so because we're afraid to admit we're afraid, perhaps, God, we just are totally out of touch with the things that scare us most because we've We've been averse to that. And so instead, Lord, what I ask is for courage. Courage to go to those places that most make us afraid so that we can bring them to you and find real peace and not the superficial peace that the world offers. We don't want a veneer of security. 
We don't want a veneer of an anchor for our soul. We want the real thing. And so, Jesus, we ask you, would you be present with us? Lord, we actually just implore you that you would make your presence known because we know you're here. And that in your presence, we would find great peace, great security, great safety, and great hope. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start in verse 1. David says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Salah. So David starts by not offering false platitudes about the world that we live in. I love that David does this. And he does this throughout the Psalms. He doesn't pretend as though the world overwhelmingly is mostly okay with a few sprinkled in difficulties. He just talks about the world in a way that's very real. And if you're honest with yourself, that's in tune with the world that you and I get to experience on an everyday basis. That the world we live in is broken. That the world we live in is difficult. That the world we live in is full of hardship. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I want to make mention of this because I think it's important. That there's a way to be an Eeyore, right? And we all know this. There's a way to be an Eeyore where we never see anything in the world that's good. It's like, it's like the world is constantly Seattle, just only cloudy and rainy, never sun. And I'm not encouraging that here, okay? I believe that there is so much beauty and so much majesty. And if you don't know that, you know, go back and serve in the kids for a little bit and you'll find a lot of joy back there. We joke a lot about the, you know, the kids being you know, difficult to raise kids. You know what's really uh, awesome is going back into the children's ministry and, and being able to laugh with those kids. There is so much joy and wonder in the world that God created. So let's eliminate the Eeyore. However, the opposite side of that is, and this is what many churches have uh, wrongly, in my opinion, lean towards, which is to come on Sunday mornings and everything's fine. It's where, you know, greeters are happy and smiling, but that means that all of us have to be happy and smiling. It's like, how are you doing? You know, highly favored, truly blessed. That's how I'm doing. Because of Christ, you know. It's like, that's true. It's just not reality in your current situation, right? We don't want to be around Ehor where everything's always difficult, but also I think that there's something disingenuous and not church-like if you say the church is the people of God, it's not like the people of God to be negligent of the realities of the hardship of life. And David isn't that way. What does he say? He says, we live in a world where things go awry, where the earth gives way, where the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, where the seas water roar and it roars and it foams, where the mountains tremble at the swelling of the sea. Or in other words, where what, what seems to be comfortable and familiar to us all changes. Have you ever been there? Where in your life you feel like you're finally in a niche, you feel like things are going normal, you feel like, you know what, finally we got our handle on this, we had our second kid, we went through very, a di great difficulty about trying to figure out the sleep schedules, now we got our sleep schedule, I have a good job, and then everything just hits the fan. And you're like, why? Why does it have to happen this way? And David is saying that's when fear arises, when everything familiar and comfortable starts to shift, and the ground beneath your feet does this. And I love that he just admits that that's the world that we live in rather than pretending that what we put on Facebook or Instagram is the realities of life. That's just the beauties of life with like a little bit of mixed in false vulnerability. David just says we live in a world where all of these things are not so certain. And, and then when things seem to go backwards on us, when everything that we thought was secure and safe is now gone, that that's whenever fear tries to take hold. Like when the nations rage, he says, or when the kingdoms totter. 
Why, why, why do politics elicit so much fear? Well, because it's the kingdom tottering, right? It feels like something that's so certain. You know, tax day is as certain as it comes, baby. And when you feel like the, you know, the, the kingdom itself is starting to do this, that brings fear. That elicits a lack of control. When you look around and you feel like, hey, we're losing our national footing when wars happen. Or we're losing our political footing when legislation seems to swing one way and then back the other. Where you know, one state does this and then in reaction another state does this and then one judge rules this and then another judge rules this and it feels like it's going like this. Where you feel like you're losing financial footing, whether personally or corporately. There's an economic downturn or you lose your job. You feel like you're losing familial footing, whether it be a rebellion of a child, a death of a family member. You're losing relationships when one Thanksgiving goes wrong, right? Which there's so much potential for that, isn't there? You feel like you're losing marital footing when there's betrayal in your marriage or just bitterness over time where there used to be all this romantic love and now you're 10 years in, 15 years in, five years in, four years in, whatever. And you're like, man, what happened to us going on date nights? You know, toddlers happened, right? Or you start to lose theological footing where things that you were so certain about, you're no longer as certain about because experience has happened, right? And now you're like, oh man, is the God I know really the God that I'm worshiping? Or you start to lose physical footing, which I think can be one of the most off-putting things when your body just stops responding like you thought it was going to respond. Like every, every guy or gal in here that was an athlete of some sort, have you had that moment yet where you, you think, you're like, I'm going to do something and your body goes, no, you're not. I remember the first time I, like, I jumped up for a rebound in basketball and I just it didn't go as high. Like, that, it, like it, my, t- my fingers didn't even touch the ball. It's like, what happened? I'm looking around. Your body didn't respond how you wanted it to respond. And that's a trite way, right? But there's other things like sickness and disease where your body doesn't respond like you want it to respond. You start to lose footing there, something that was always so natural to you. The sad thing is I've been a part of moments in my time as a pastor when people were sick and in need of prayer. And they were told that the reason that they weren't healed is because they didn't have enough faith. And that, it just devastated me every time that would happen. That people would look at them and say, you know why we're praying for you and you're not getting well? is because you wake up and you say, I'm sick. And you need to wake up and say, I'm not sick. You wake up and say, I'm just, you know, you fill in the blank. And you need to say, I'm healed. I'm well. I'm an athlete. And I think that all of that is generally garbage. Because it seems like it's courage, but I think that it's actually a form of cowardice because it refuses to face the reality and it refuses to lament the reality. It refuses to lament the reality of a broken world. It refuses to lament the fact that you are sick. It refuses to, because you just want to say, no, I'm not sick. I'm favored. David doesn't do that. David doesn't do that at all. In fact, he just says, I'm sick. I'm hurting from the outside. It's, it looks like a mess. C.H. Spurgeon says this, and the quote should be on the screen. He's, he's talking about David here, and he says, I am afraid. I admire his honesty in making this confession. Some men would have never admitted that they were afraid. They would have blustered and said they cared for nothing. Generally, there is no greater coward in this world than the man who will never acknowledge that he's afraid. See, David's not only acknowledging it, he's naming his emotion. And then, because he's naming that emotion, he's able to regulate it from there. But as long as we continue pretending as though that's not actually how we're feeling, it it makes that next step of actually being able to regulate that with the truth of the gospel that much more difficult. 
If we continue to pretend as though that's what's not really happening, it makes it that much more difficult to apply the gospel to something that you're unwilling to admit. Take this into account when you're married. If you're unwilling to admit that you're a sinner, it's a lot harder and more difficult to humble yourself because you have not yet admitted that you're a sinner in need of grace. You'll notice this theme throughout this series. The decision of whether or not, to feel, whether or not you will feel the emotion deeply and not ignore it, and then to regulate that emotion by the power of the Spirit is the hinge point of righteous and unrighteous emotions. Will you feel it? Will you name it? And then will you be able to regulate it by the truth of God? If you're unwilling to actually admit that this is how you feel, you're going to have a really hard time regulating that because you're going to continue living in a false reality. And in many ways, it takes a lot of courage just to admit what David admits here, which he says, when all this is happening, I feel fear, but I will not fear. Does that make sense? It's one thing to say, I'm not going to feel this way, or I'm not going to do this in the future, but I am feeling this right now. And that's what David does. He feels, he expresses, he chooses to regulate his emotion. So a couple of practical applications here, and this is why I prayed what I prayed when we started. I think the first step is acknowledging your fear, where that resides. If you're a mom or a dad, acknowledging your fears of the unknown and the uncontrollable with your kids. As a church, I'll tell you, as a pastor, I've gotten numbers of calls with kids going to the hospital. It's a scary thing, isn't it? It's a terrifying thing. Some of you are in the medical field. You know this, right? Nothing more scary than going to the NICU or... It just, you just feel so out of control. I'll tell you, pastorally, it's my least favorite things are getting those calls. What do you do? You're, you're all, all sorts of, all your footings go on in those moments. So the first thing is to acknowledge that that's something that you fear. The second is then to express that fear to God and to others. Actually expressing this is how I feel. The third is then evaluating your fear in the light of the gospel. And that's where we're going to get here in a second. And the fourth is aiming your fears according to the light of the gospel. One way to put this, and you can put this in your notes, is the Bible doesn't tell us to reject fear, but to redirect fear where it ought to be. The Bible doesn't tell us to reject fear. It tells us to redirect fear where fear ought to be. So let's continue on. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. David says in the face of calamity and great trial, most people say this is probably 2 Samuel 8 around that time when David's going to war all the time, fighting off the enemies of God, and he's going into battle constantly. This would probably be a war song in Israel where they're going off to battle and trusting God's going to give us triumph, God's going to give us triumph, God's going to give us triumph. Now that's very uh, difficult for us to kind of jive with because we are a generation that's very far removed from the regularities of war. Like when wars are fought and battles are fought now, it's pretty far removed from us. We don't see actual visions of that, or we don't see that on the news. You know, there was a time where they were actually broadcasting battles on the news. That was very regular. That's just not regular for us anymore. You know, for us, I I thought about it as I was preparing for this. You know, I grew up in the area, uh, and most of us did, in the era of, well, a Scud missile was shot over here, and, you know, it was just normal to hear that. But it was not always normal to hear that, you know, growing up. But for us, like, oh, in a couple, we shot a couple more missiles off. Like, What? normative but it wasn't all that normative in this day battle was face to face and so for them to be singing this song it's a very present danger that David is facing here and at the starting line he tells us that God is a very present help in in the midst of this kind of turmoil the presence and nearness of God are at the heart of what it means to have faithful courage there's something about the presence of someone powerful that gives us courage this is why when we're children we cry out for mom and dad right 
There's something about our parents that gives us a symbol of strength, of security, of stability. And therefore, when things start to get a little shaky, you want to reach out for that. How many of you as an adult have gotten to that place where, you know, you know, I wish I could call my mom or my dad, or you do, whenever things get squirrely, right? Like, I've, I've had those moments before. My, my father died when I was 12, where I was like, you know, I really wish I could call. Because what? You're reaching out for presence. You're reaching out for a stable presence in your life, something that represents strength, represents stability and security. Moses does this when he communicates with God. Gideon does this in his interactions with God. You ever thought about this? Moses says to God, I will not take the children of Israel unless you promise you'll go with us. The only thing that makes us distinct, God, is that you go with us. Moses knows it's the very presence of God that gives him the courage to continue doing what he's doing. And we know that Moses isn't just giving platitudes. He's not just flattering God because Moses generally was a very cowardly, squirrely guy without God. I mean, that's what the Bible records. Like he flees away at the first sign of trouble in, uh, in Exodus whenever he's in Egypt. Uh, the first thing that happens whenever the, the burning bush happens, the Bible records he runs away. And then you guys know this, you know, Prince of Egypt, right, where he has the staff and he throws it down and it turns into a snake. You know what Moses first does with the snake? He runs from the snake. And then God's like, hey, grab the snake's tail. First of all, I, I agree. I would run from the snake. So I just want to make that abundantly clear. Moses and I, I am more squirrely and cowardly when it comes to that. But he runs away. So he says, God, I need your presence. It's the only thing that gives me power to do this. Gideon does the same thing with the fleece. You guys remember this story in the Bible? God says, go out and, and combat the enemies. And Gideon has this golden fleece that he puts out, and he's like, here, I want you to, if, if the rain, if the dew is on the fleece, but it's not on the ground around the fleece, then I'll know it's you. And so he wakes up in the morning, and the dew is on the fleece, but it's not around. And he says, okay, uh, I'm going to do it one more time. If I put the fleece out there, and the dew's on the, around the fleece, but it's not on the fleece, then I'll know it's you. He keeps on bargaining with God, and God keeps saying, it's me, now go do what I told you. But what's he really doing? If it's not God, I'm not going into this. And, and, and that's what David is leaning in here. God is a very present help in times of trouble. God's presence is what strengthens David in the face of great fear, in the face of great trouble. It's the presence of a powerful God that keeps David secure. He gives this theme of the city of God, and this is written throughout your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Jerusalem is always seen as God's city. It's also referred to as Zion in the Bible, right? And it's where God intended to dwell. From beginning to end, he intended to dwell with his people in Jerusalem. That's why in the Old Testament, you have the temple at the center of Jerusalem where God dwells. And then in the New Testament at Revelation, what you'll see is the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven and God will dwell in his city again with his people. He intends to be there. <clears throat> Here's what David says. There's a river who makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Another way to put that, in light of New Testament theology, Jesus in John chapter 6 reaches out his arms and says, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. I have the river. I am the river of life. Now, Jesus saying that would have been a big deal, right? Because of texts like this. Jesus saying, I'm the river. So, to put this in another way, David says, Jesus brings joy to God's people, inviting them into safety in his presence. That's what David's saying here. Or there's a river, that's Jesus, making glad, there's joy. The city of God, which is God's people. The holy habitation, which is inviting them into safety. God is in the midst of her, that's Christ's presence. Therefore, she shall not be moved. Who is she? That's us. We have security. 
David's pointing to this idea that we'll have safety in the presence of God. And Jesus represents the perfect presence of God, not just spiritually, but tangibly. This is why it's important that we believe that Jesus was the God-man, 100% divine and 100% human. It gives us that presence. Jesus steps in and he, touch, he says, touch my scars, touch my ribs here. I am flesh and blood so you can feel tangibly the presence of God. One of my favorite series is by a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. It's Lord of the Rings. Uh, if you've never watched that, then you have lived under a rock. <clears throat> and I feel bad for you. But there's a, there's a scene in this battle. Uh, the bat, it's called the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's in the second movie, or well, the second book, depending upon how you read that. But um, anyway, th- they are basically hemmed in. The good guys are hemmed in by this awful uh, force. They're, they're all these, like, pseudo-human monsters called orcs. It's a weird thing. But anyway, they're all around basically coming down on this castle, this Helm's Deep. It's this fortress that's protected. And the battle rages all night long, and basically they're pressing in. And the final group of people that have not died are in the, in the center of this citadel, and they're basically about to just go out for one last bang. They're going to they're gonna ring the horn, they're going to go out and fight, and they're going to go die on their swords, right? But then they remember, as the morning dawns, they remember that the... The good wizard, this guy named Gandalf, right? He promised, on this day, in the morning, I'll be there. And so they ring the horn and they go out and then boom, they hear another horn and they look up and it's Gandalf and then boom, all of these other white riders. And there's this perfect depiction with Tolkien of this dark army and this army full of light. Gandalf's full of this, all, he's all white and the sun gleams at his back as they come down and they basically just demolish the rest of the darkened army. And Tolkien is doing this for a purpose. He's doing this because it's a nod to Psalm 46. It's a nod here that God says, God will help her when morning dawns. That when things seem very, very dark, that God has promised, the sun's going to rise and I'll be there. My presence will be there. Now, it's a nod from Tolkien, but I don't think it's perfectly in the biblical depiction because what we see in the Bible is, it's, is David gives us this idea that there's a raging and a tottering all around, but that because God is in the midst of the city as a powerful preserver of life and peace, that there's peace in the midst of the city. Think about this with Psalm 23. This is a famous psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green, green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You set a table before me, check this out, in the presence of my enemies. You want to talk about the weirdest dinner of all time? Agreed? A table is set. It's a banqueting feast. Christ is seated and he sits you down. And all around you are everybody who hates you. And they are just waiting for their turn. David said, that's how it feels sometimes to be with God, is I know I'm secure, but man, if I look around, it looks awful. This guy's jeering at me. This guy's chasing me. For David particularly, he's like Saul the king. He's after me on and off. People are talking awfully about me. If you read through the Psalms, you'll notice that he just feels he's afraid most of his life. And yet if he could just focus in on the city of God and the presence of God, he said there's safety and security here. And that's the picture that we get here from Psalm 46 from David. It's the presence of God in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the most fearful and terrorizing times of our lives that bring us great peace. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death, right? 
Some of you thought that was just Coolio. You grew up in the 90s? Uh Uh-uh. He got that from somewhere. All right. That went over some of your heads. We'll continue. We are promised the presence of God by Jesus in Scripture. So I just wanted to practically apply this because I think it's helpful. How do we experience the presence of God as Christians today? Well, the most obvious is with the Holy Spirit, right? God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I am going to ascend because I'm going to send my helper and my helper will come. And then when this Holy Spirit fills you, then we have the presence of God actively all the time. This is why God can make good on his promise. When Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, and then he ascends, if you didn't know about the Holy Spirit, you'd be like, what? That makes zero sense. Hey, I'm going to be with you always. And then you just jet. Think about if that happened in your regular life. Your parents were like, hey, I'm never going to leave you, but see you later. And you never see him again. Jesus says he's going to send the Spirit. But I think there's other ways that God mediates his presence to us very practically that we ought to be looking for. And I have four of those. Number one, the Word. God communicates his presence through the Word. And I don't want to assume this because it's, it's, it should be obvious. But why am I standing up here preaching out of the Bible and not just talking for my own good? It's because God mediates his presence through this book. And that we can experience the presence of God in these very words. Just like, why did Martin Luther say, let's turn again to Psalm 46? Because it's there that he would experience confidence and strength and peace in the ancient words of the scripture. Not just from David, but from God himself. This is why it's essential that we believe the Bible is not just a book written by a bunch of authors that were men. But it's a, it's a book that is written and authored by the Holy Spirit. So we experience God's presence through the word. Number two, we experience God's presence through prayer. Combating fear has everything to do with communion with God in prayer. Jesus sending the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with us always, and yet David constantly is going to God in prayer. Jesus is constantly going to God in prayer. Prayer is this supernatural communion with the God of the universe. We experience his presence in prayer, both privately and corporately. Number three, we experience God's presence in community. The church is the people of God who are consistently communicating the presence of God every single day to one another. This is how this looks. You call your friend to meet you at the hospital because things have gone wrong. Your friend who loves Jesus shows up. And you know what they can't do? Control the situation. But you know what they can do? Give, put their hands on you. Hug you. Tell you that they're there for you. Pray for you. And you experience a tangible presence of what it feels like to be supported. And in that, hopefully what's happening is not, man, I really love my friend. I hope that does happen. But I hope what really happens at the rock bottom is thanks be to God who's with me right now because that's why they're here. To mediate, to communicate God's presence to you. God's present with you. This is why Peter calls the church a royal priesthood. What was the priest doing in the Old Testament? Mediating the presence of God. They were supposed to go to God and then to the people, and they were mediating, right? Now, we know we have one mediator, Christ Jesus, but we get to be like Christ in that what we do is we come alongside each other, communicating the presence of God to each other. And I pray if you need that now, I I hope that you find that in someone. Like if you're like, man, I really need somebody to give me a hug. I need somebody to pray for me. I hope you do find that. But I want to ask you also, As you're going through this, who are you doing that for? Not just, hey, I really, really need that. Sometimes that happens. Like, I really hate the church because no one's ever there for me. I'd say, you know, shocker, but, you know, we have to do that for everyone, right? So it's not just, yeah, I, I wait for everybody to do that for me, but I also engage who can I be an active presence for in the midst of their turmoil 
And what God promises you is that when you act out of weakness like that, that he will show you his strength. This is why the Macedonians were praised for their generosity, because they were poor. So it was the one thing they probably shouldn't be doing, and yet they were doing that, right? This is all very practical for us, right? We're Americans. Giving when you don't have money is tough, and that's what they were doing. This is why Jesus praised the widow for the widow's might. She gave everything that she had. What was she doing? Operating out of great weakness so that she was trusting God's great strength. Sometimes when we're going through great difficulty, we're in deep fear, we don't feel like we should have anything to encourage other people, and that's the very thing we ought to do so that God will then bring us his strength. Okay, last thing, and I'll close with this, is that David gives us a vision of a powerful God. So it's not just that God's with us with his presence, but it's that this God that is with us is powerful. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but he utters his voice and the whole earth melts. You ever thought of that? I just picture like Velveeta cheese, you know? That is so intense. The kingdoms are tottering, the nations are raging, they're all fighting. God just says, one thing in the whole earth melts. This is a big picture of a powerful God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Now this is a nod to Egypt, right? Where Pharaoh called himself the God, right? He called himself the God of gods. And then God showed up and said, my name will be exalted among the nations. And he showed his power over Egypt over and over and over again. And he did it in the most odd ways, right? Like God didn't send an army just to take over. He just like sent frogs. Isn't that funny? It's like you would think, you'd be like, let's get a big army together. They'll all be mine. No, 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 no. His army is really squirrely. They have like, you know, pitchforks and that's it. He sends frogs and locusts. He turns the Nile to blood. He sends a guy that's a stutterer with a stick who throws it down and it turns into a snake. Who puts his hand in his jacket and it turns leprous and then he turns it back and then it's back to skin. He does it in the most weird of ways and yet he shows his power over Egypt. Because by the end of it, the entire army of Pharaoh is at the bottom of the Red Sea. It's intense. David's nodding to that saying, he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. All of those are war instruments says our God just does he's just done with it when he's done with it he's done with it and then maybe the most important be still and know that I am God this seems to come from the voice of God not David I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth and then David repeats the Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our fortress in the scriptures we have these moments of Jesus's power in the gospels where he walks on water or he casts out demons or at the transfiguration, uh, he's talking with Elijah and Moses and, and it's like all of the disciples just fall on their face. They're terrified. They're so scared in these moments with Christ as you and I would be if our friend started to exhibit these like Marvel Avenger-like qualities, right? Just terrifies them. And each time Jesus does the same thing, he calms the fears of the disciples by saying, it's me, don't be afraid. Now, that is the exact opposite of every other character that you'll find when others fear them. Other kings are feared in the Old Testament. They do not calm the fears of their subjects. They say, what many of us have heard from Hollywood, right? You should be very, very afraid. But our king says, don't worry, it's me. Don't be afraid. I wanted to read one of those from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. This is John the Revelator. He was the disciple that lived the longest, and he's having these dreams 
And in his dreams, he's, he's seeing visions on the island of Patmos as he's been exiled. And this is a vision that he has of Jesus. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now he's going to name seven churches. Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now check this out. This is Jesus who he's about to see. Clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So that's an appropriate response, right? This is what we call righteous fear, or good fear. Now, how do we know that it's good fear? Because watch what Jesus says. He laid his right hand on me, that's presence, saying, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of two of the things that you and I fear the most, death and hell. That's Jesus' response to John. Notice this complete redirection of fear. John is redirected to fear the only one that he ought to fear, which is really what David's doing here. He's like, I'm not going to fear. Why? Because I'm in the presence of the one that I should fear the most, and he loves me. I'm in the presence of the one who created it all, and he's for me. Therefore, I'm not going to fear. It looks scary on the outside, but I'm with him. This is what Jesus said to the disciples when the storms are raging and they're like, are you going to let us die? And he looks at them and says, why don't you have faith? Why are you scared? Now that seems mean because you and I would definitely be scared if we were in a boat in the middle of the ocean and it was going down. But Jesus's logic is that I'm in the boat. Do you really think it's going to go down? Which is actually more logical. He's already walked on water. He commanded fish to swim into a net. He's saying, if I'm in the boat, the fear should be directed to me so that I can then calm your fear. And how does he calm their fears? Hey, don't be afraid. It's me. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and guess what? I conquered death. I conquered Hades. It's the very presence of Jesus that brings us hope. David ends with, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. He's has these words that seem to be flowing through him from the throne of God. And in Hebrew, these words, be still, could be interpreted, cease striving, or be weak. Be willing to be weak, and then know that I am God. See, it's in those moments where we admit our fears, we admit being weak, that then we are overwhelmed with the strength of God's presence in our lives. But as long as we continue to pretend to be strong, it's harder to know the presence of a powerful God that loves us because we're continually pretending that we can handle it. And so the invitation here from God is be still or stop trying to do what you were never meant to do or be weak. So I want to encourage you 
if you're a believer here, one of the major steps of acknowledging fear is the willingness to be weak, like Paul said, so that you can experience the strength of Christ. Or if you're not a believer, one of the first steps to being weak is to admit that you actually need a Savior and that Christ is a worthy one. So I want to encourage you with that as we go and partake in the Lord's table. Christ is a worthy Savior. Be willing to be weak so that you can experience real strength. You'll stand to your feet. Lord, we, we confess to you that sometimes life feels like sitting at the table and it's hard not to get distracted even though you're sitting there with us by all of the things going on the outside. And so we ask that as we come to your table in remembrance of your body and your blood that was shed for us, would you eliminate distractions so that we could experience what it's like to be weak and also to be strong? That paradox of Christianity. This idea of being able to be humble and yet greatly courageous. Being weak but greatly powerful. Being laid low but being highly exalted, God. This paradox that is the Christian life, would you help us as we take to experience that all over again, God? And for my friends under the sound of my voice who perhaps have never experienced your grace, would you pierce through the sky of darkness and shine your light? Then in the midst of a dark world, we can take heart because you've overcome the world. God, I, I pray that we'd redirect our fears. May we leave out of here with much, a much different outlook by your mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name.